Can you look forward with confidence to the day when you will stand before the Lord Jesus? Well, last time we saw some reasons why anyone who puts their trust in him can have that assurance. If your trust isn't in Jesus tonight, you can have no confidence at all. Uh, You won't be able to stand before him. Uh, But if your trust is in him, however small your faith is, uh, you can confidently uh, look forward to the day when you will stand before him. Uh, As the brothers uh, stand before Joseph at the beginning of this chapter, he chooses to relate to them as their brother. And he does so in the knowledge that the very reason he suffered was so that they could be saved. And when one day we stand before our Saviour, we we can have confidence that he will relate to us the very same way. And it's an amazing thing to have that confidence. And so, so last time I sought to, to encourage those of you who, who perhaps uh, were a bit nervous as you, you, you looked forward to that day of standing before the Lord Jesus, that you can have confidence. But perhaps that isn't so much where your struggle is tonight. Uh, perhaps for some of you, the, the greater challenge is what happens while you're waiting for that day to come. You, you have no qualms at all about, about the day you'll appear before the Lord Jesus. Your, your trust is in him. You're, you're confident. And that's a great thing. But, but the bigger question for you is, well, how am I meant to live here and now? And even how can I keep on going as a Christian until I see him? Perhaps you've become a Christian recently. You've experienced forgiveness that, that once you, you didn't think you needed or you thought you needed but, but it wasn't a possibility. But now you've experienced it. But the question on your mind is, well, I've been forgiven. Now what? Or you know someone who's recently become a Christian and, and that's a question you think when it comes to, to them. They've been forgiven. Now what? Uh, how, how am I, how are they meant to live now? Uh, Joseph's brothers are actually in a very similar position in this chapter and the second half of it. Uh, they've just received this amazing forgiveness from Joseph. Uh, they've been reconciled to him uh, and yet the story isn't over. Uh, their forgiveness, their reconciliation with the ruler It wasn't the end of the story. And your forgiveness, your becoming a Christian, isn't the end of your story either. Joseph has revealed to his brothers who he really is, just as Jesus has done to you. But as much as the brothers might like to stay with Joseph forever, he has work for them to do. He has a task for them to do. Yes, Joseph desires that they may be with him where he is, just as Jesus uh, says he desires of us in John 17. Uh, But until that glorious day comes and we are with him where he is, he has work for us to do. And so what are the brothers meant to be doing? And how are we to live in the here and now? We're in the position, we've met the Saviour, but we're not yet home with him. Uh, 
Well, we're going to look tonight at Joseph's instructions and reassurances to his brothers and see their relevance to us. As we look at their journey to Canaan and then back to Egypt again as a picture of our journey through this life to heaven. So what are we to be doing here and now? We're going to see three things tonight. And firstly, uh, particularly from verse 9, we're to tell the good news to those who don't yet believe. Now that we're believers, what are we to be doing? Well, we're to be telling the good news to those who don't yet believe. What was one of the first things that you wanted to do when you became a Christian? Well, surely it was that you wanted to tell people, especially those who you loved most in the world. Uh, maybe that's something we can even talk about after a, with, with tea and coffee. Maybe you sat down with a loved one, a family member, and you tried to explain to them what had happened to you. Or you tried to get them to come to church. Or maybe you're still a new Christian and you're taking it more slowly. And you're waiting until they see the change in your life and hopefully start asking you questions about it. But whatever way it has expressed itself up to this point, uh, that, that desire was surely there from the very beginning, that, that now that you've believed that you need to tell others. Uh, perhaps you don't remember a time when you weren't a Christian, and if that's the case, then you probably also don't remember a time when you haven't wanted to share your faith with others. It's not something that we even seem to need to explicitly teach to our children. They seem to, 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 to realise almost instinctively that those who don't know Jesus need to hear about Jesus. Once we see Jesus for who he really is, the most natural thing in the world is to want to share that with others. Once we've met him, we want others to meet him too. Just like Andrew, the, the disciple, followed Jesus and then he went and found his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. And so here in verse 9, Joseph tells his brothers, hurry and go to my father and say to him. Now is Jacob an unbeliever in this chapter? Well, not in the sense that he's an unregenerate man. He's a, he's a saved man. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but, but he does picture for us an unbeliever here because he doesn't believe this specific message. Uh, we're told at the end of verse 26, for he did not believe them. Remember Joseph's dreams way back at the start of the story, 20 plus years ago at this point. Those dreams were a revelation from God. They were God speaking through him. But just like the brothers, Jacob didn't believe God's word. So both then and now, the idea that his son Joseph would be a great ruler, it seems so unbelievable. But the brothers were once unbelievers too. They once didn't believe this message, but, but they've come to see the truth. And now they're to go to Jacob and tell him the news. And what are they to tell Jacob? Well, two things. They're, they're to tell him a message of resurrection and exaltation. Resurrection and exaltation. This is effectively a message about resurrection. Uh, 
Because as far as Jacob knows, Joseph is dead. But in verse 26, the brothers tell him that the one he thought was dead is actually alive. And in verse 28, Jacob finally believes him. He says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. Obviously, Joseph hadn't actually died, but, but they, thought he, they, they thought he had. They had been certain that he had. But everything changes when they hear the news that the one that they thought was dead is actually alive. I'm not sure if there's any significance to it, but, but this is, is what, what can make Jacob in verse 27 become Israel in verse 28. The message of resurrection is what brings about that change. And our message too is one of resurrection. And not just that someone who, who people thought was dead is actually alive, but that someone who really was dead is actually alive. Jesus is alive. He has risen. Every Lord's Day is to be a reminder of that to us. And does that not change the way that you look at the week ahead? As the Apostle Paul puts it if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you're still in your sins in other words all this is absolutely pointless but Christ has been raised and that changes everything our faith isn't futile we're not still in our sins the resurrection has changed everything for us and so this message is a message of resurrection but it's also a message of exaltation Look at how this comes across again and again in this chapter. Verse 9, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Or verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honour in Egypt. And in verse 26 they say, Joseph is alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. They had a message to tell their father, not just that Joseph was alive, but that he was highly exalted. And we too have a message to tell people about Christ's exaltation. It would have been wrong for Jacob to think of Joseph as he had once known him. As a 17 year old lad suffering at the hands of his brothers. But many people in our world only want to think of Jesus as he was once known. As a baby who makes no demands on their lives. Or they, they picture Jesus as nailed to a cross, as if he's still there, uh, perhaps with a helpless look on his face. Or people will picture Jesus standing at a door knocking, hoping that someone will let him in. But is that the Jesus we're to tell people about? No, we need to tell them about, the, about Jesus as he really is. Yes, the one who was born as a baby. Yes, the one who was crucified. But, but the one who, who God has now highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. As the one who has the power over life and death. Uh, as the one, uh, as we thought about this morning from Psalm 114, uh, that, that at the end of time the, the, the earth and the heavens will, will flee away as, as he returns. 
It is a message of exaltation that we have, that, that we can go and tell people that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we have a message of exaltation to, to tell others and to believe ourselves. We need to believe this ourselves as well. Not just something that we, that we say, but something we actually believe. Surely much of our timidity in telling the gospel comes from forgetting what Jesus is really like now. And not considering the fact that every single person we encounter, friends, neighbours, family, strangers, will one day stand before him. And so Joseph's command here to his brothers, his first command is to tell the good news to those who don't yet believe. And perhaps we think today, as we're called to tell the message to those who don't yet believe, that, well, there's no point, they're they're just not going to believe. But there is power in the word of God. Verse 27, when they had told him all the words of Joseph, which he said to them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. They tell him all the words of Joseph. They don't edit the words, they don't reinterpret them. And the Holy Spirit uses those words to revive the spirit of Jacob. So the first priority that we have now that we're believers is to tell others. But does that mean that we have have one message for unbelievers and another message for believers? Well, no, because we all need the gospel Whether you want to take Jacob as a picture here of an unbeliever or whether you want to look at him as he really is, as a weak, discouraged believer, he needs the same message. Because what does he need to hear? What do we need to hear as believers that will revive our hearts and our spirits? We need reminded that Jesus is risen and that he is exalted. And we need to do what the Apostle Paul says and encourage one another with these words. So that's the first thing we're to be doing as we wait for the day we stand before Jesus and we're reunited with him. We're to tell the good news to those who don't yet believe and we're to believe that good news ourselves. I'm sure when they got back to Canaan, it it seemed a long way from from the palace in Egypt. And the brothers are thinking to themselves, did we really see that? Is is Joseph, our brother, really exalted? But they they reminded themselves of what they've seen. It was true. uh, And we need to remind ourselves of these things. So firstly, tell the good news to those who don't yet believe. Secondly, don't quarrel on the way. Don't quarrel on the way. We've just seen that seeing Jesus for who he really is and being reconciled to him should naturally lead to us wanting to share the gospel with others. In other words, being converted changes how we think about unbelievers. But there's another group of people that being converted should change our attitude to, and that is our fellow Christians, because they are now our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Joseph tells his brothers here in verse 24, do not quarrel on the way. 
A new relationship with the Saviour must lead to a new relationship with one another. And in fact, if our horizontal relationships with other Christians aren't right, it calls into question whether we really have that vertical relationship with Christ that we claim to have. How do you know if someone is a Christian? Is it because they, they do or don't do certain outward things? Well, here's how the Apostle John answers that question. He says that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And he goes on to say that whoever does not love remains in death. Do you love your fellow Christians? If not, the Apostle John says that you're actually kidding yourself about being a believer yourself. By the second century, the early Christians had taken the gospel to the great city of Carthage in North Africa, modern-day Tunisia. So we're thinking about the gospel going to Sudan this morning, to Tunisia tonight. And do you know what, what their enemies said about them? Their enemies hated the Christians, but they still had to say, even as they, they slandered them, see how they love one another. See how they are ready to die for one another. See how they love one another. See how they are even ready to die for one another. But do unbelievers say that about Christians today? Do they say it about us as a, a congregation? Do they say it about us as a denomination? If I were to ask you what the works of the flesh were, what would you say? The works of the flesh. Well, you might say sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Yep, uh, those, are, those are actually top of John's list in 1 John chapter 3, list of the works of the flesh. But he goes on to list enmity, strife, dissensions and divisions. And yet I worry that in some reformed circles today, enmity, strife, dissensions and divisions are not only tolerated, but the whole atmosphere encourages them. The whole atmosphere seems to be, let's focus on what makes us different from other believers. There, there's little celebration of the great truths of Christianity that unites us. Lots of focus on what separates us, often on things that shouldn't separate us. Enmity, strife, dissension and division are works of the flesh. They don't come from the Spirit. That doesn't mean Christians can't disagree with one another. But there's something seriously wrong with a Christian community where enmity, strife, dissension and division are treated as normal things. And men whose lives are marked by those things are not actually spiritual men. Uh, for all they might be able to, to talk about the things of God. But not just to point the finger at others. What about us? You might be scandalized to hear of a, a minister running away with his secretary. Uh, and you should be. But would you be scandalized to hear of someone in, in this congregation 
saying something unkind about someone else in the congregation? Do you make judgments about people in the church without knowing all the details? If someone says something that sounds a bit off or, or does something that seems a bit strange, do you try and find a charitable way of interpreting it or do you jump to the worst possible conclusion? My friend Kyle Borg, who, who's preached here in the past, wrote an article recently and in it he said, churches aren't always broken by big things, false teaching, moral scandals or leadership failure. They can do the job but it's not always what happens in the life of the church. Rather, it's the little things that seep into the worship and fellowship of the church that, given the right conditions, often fracture a congregation. And he concludes with this line, when people's attitudes, personalities, preferences and opinions meet with the coldness of lovelessness, congregations break. When people's attitudes, personalities, preferences and opinions meet with the coldness of lovelessness, congregations break. Many congregations are, are broken today. And as I, I've thought about all, all this over the, the last two weeks, I keep coming back to Jesus' question to his disciples in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples what were you discussing on the way and none of them will answer him because of course they've been discussing who is the greatest but imagine us getting to heaven and Jesus asking us the same question what were you discussing on the way what were you discussing with your fellow Christians on the way to heaven would we have to look back and say that, that most of our time was spent debating minor differences that separate us from other Christians? Would we have to look back and say the thing that stopped us being supportive of our church was the small things that, that we thought should have been done differently? And maybe what should have been done differently? Surely we don't want to ever have to say that. In the time that's left until we stand before Jesus, let's not be those who spend their energies discussing, debating, getting up in arms about, or being offended by things that don't ultimately matter. And all the while, the advance of the gospel in this community or in this nation is hindered. Because why would God bring on believers into churches like that? So what are we do to do as we await being brought face to face with our Saviour? Firstly, we're to tell the good news to those who, who don't yet believe. Secondly, we're not to quarrel on the way. Thirdly and finally, remember he will give you all that you need. Remember he will give you all that you need. It's one thing for Jacob to hear that Joseph is alive. But the prospect of, of Jacob actually making it to Egypt and standing face to face with him no doubt seemed uh, a big ask. Jacob is an old man at this point. He's 130 years old and the famine is still in full force. How is he going to make it there? And perhaps you wonder how you'll make it there, how you'll make it to heaven. 
you feel your, your weakness, uh, as Jacob no doubt did. Heaven seems far away, uh, as Egypt no doubt did to Jacob. And spiritually, it seems that you're living in the midst of a famine. Yes, you have these great promises of seeing your Saviour face to face in the end, but you're not sure if you'll actually make it there. But if that's you tonight, and it's probably all of us at times, let this chapter be a reminder to you that your Saviour will send you all you need to make it home. If you just take, take one thing away from the sermon... Remember that line. Your Saviour will send you all that you need to make it home. Look in verse 27 at what it is that revives Jacob. It's not just the news that Joseph is alive, but it's the sight of the wagons provided to carry him to Egypt. Jacob has heard the words that the brothers speak to him. But in the wagons, he also has something physical, something tangible, something sent to him from the place he's going to. They're almost like a kind of sacrament. The sacraments of of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're like visible words. Visible words. They're physical, tangible pictures of God's promises. Not of our commitment to him, but of his commitment to us. Or perhaps we could look on Joseph sending the wagons as similar to Jesus sending his spirit. Because the wagons ensure that Jacob and his sons will make it safely home. And the Holy Spirit ensures that we will make it safely home. Because did you know that one of the reasons the Holy Spirit dwells in us is to empower us to persevere. The Holy Spirit, who is Christ's gift to us, dwells within us to empower us to persevere, to make it to the end of the Christian life. We also see Joseph's provision in verse 22 with the changes of clothes, uh, and in verse 23 with the donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, with grain and bread and, and provision. Now, I'm not saying we need to... Somehow try and find a spiritual equivalent for for each individual item. The big picture here is that Joseph provides what Jacob and his sons need for the journey. Just as Jesus provides what we need for the journey. But it's hard not to draw the connection between the change of clothes that Joseph provides for his brothers. With the garments of righteousness that Jesus provides for us. Joseph's brothers are are doubtless in no fit state to stand in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. Their clothes would have been old and worn, just as left to ourselves. We are in no fit state to stand before God, with even the best deeds done in our own strength as like filthy rags in his sight. But Joseph provides all that they need to stand before him and before Pharaoh. And Jesus provides all that we need to stand before him and his Father. And if you're not a Christian tonight, it's as if you would, you would look at this delivery of clothes sent to you to wear in the king's court. And you say, no, I don't need those. I'm going to go in these rags that I've made myself. But Jesus provides all, all we need. Again, I don't think we have to necessarily get into specifics but but i don't think we'll be too far wrong if we see the grain and the bread and the good things of egypt 
as God's provision for us in terms of the Bible read and preached, the Lord's Supper and Christian fellowship. All things he sends us to keep us going. Gifts which are are given to us not as individuals primarily but as part of the people of God. Joseph provides for his brothers and Jesus will provide for his brothers. And wonderfully, we have a reminder here that he provides for our families as well, for our children. Verse 18, take your father and your households and come to me. Verse 19, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. Maybe your worry isn't so much about whether you'll make it to the end of the Christian race, but it's more for your children or your grandchildren. You might die having experienced only two years of famine, as it were, whereas they might have years and years of of spiritual famine to face. But the God who has provided for you, and for those of us brought up in Christian families who who provided for our parents, uh, maybe our our grandparents, our great-grandparents, He'll provide for our children too because he has promised to be God to us and to our children after us. After all, if God has kept hold of his people down through the ages, is he suddenly going to let go of them in this generation? Look around at the world and what will you do? Will will, will you panic? Of course you'll panic. But look at God and his promises and his his track record of faithfulness from one generation to the next. And it becomes a lot harder to panic. Or perhaps your concern tonight isn't so much that God... It isn't so much about how your children will fare in this generation. But it's about how they will fare in this location You don't worry about your children in this generation, but you do worry about them in this location. Perhaps you'd be a lot happier if they were part of a bigger church uh, with more children, more youth activities, or a Christian school they could go to, or even uh, more, uh, or any Christian friends in their their normal school. Um, And yes, we'd love to have some of these things, but God will provide what your children need. Carl and I were were talking the other day about a couple who served on the mission field in France for 20 years and and who brought up their children there in secular, atheistic France where where God can't even be mentioned in school. And yet all their their children are Christians and they're married to Christians. Brother or sister in Christ, God will provide for you. He'll provide all that you need. And he'll provide all that your children need as well. Uh, And this isn't just a message to parents, but it's a message to everyone. Because part of God's provision for the children in this church is the older saints in this church. We were still in Galway on Tuesday night, uh, so we were able to be there for their midweek Bible study, which at the minute involves watching a talk by Sinclair Ferguson, followed by a time of prayer. And there was a line in Sinclair's talk where he said this. He said, no two parents have enough grace to raise a child for Christ. No two parents have enough grace to raise a child for Christ. 
And I quoted the saying that it takes a church to raise a child. And that's a, a call uh, to parents to have their children involved in church. Because even if, if you are the two strongest Christians you know, between the two of you, you won't have enough grace to raise the child for Christ. So his words were a challenge to parents not to try and do it themselves, but also an encouragement that even though we don't have enough grace by ourselves, God has placed our children among those who can make up what we lack. And I hope that's also an encouragement for those of you without children of your own. That one of the reasons God has put you here is for the sake of the children in this church. Because you have a role to play in their lives. Uh, Be encouraged by that. It's a challenge as well that that you would show grace to the children in the church. That you wouldn't look on them as Jesus' disciples did. As a, a distraction from the real action of the adults listening to Jesus. That you would suffer little children to come unto him. And I'm not making this up, but, but I was in a church one time when the words, those words of Jesus were sung as a hymn. Suffer little children to come unto me. And in the middle of the hymn, one lady turned around and glared at a couple of children a few rows behind who were making a bit of noise. I, I was probably in my mid-teens at the time. Uh, the place of children in church wasn't something that, that was, was a big issue for me. Uh, it wasn't a church I was normally at. I, I didn't know the family involved. But it just seemed a bit odd to me to be singing about letting the children coming to Jesus while seemingly wishing they were somewhere else. No two parents have enough grace to raise a child for Christ. And so those children need to receive grace from those in the church as well. And not have them or their parents made to feel that they're a burden. But also on the flip side of that, they don't need to be made to feel that they're the centre of attention either. Because what their parents are actually trying to get them to do is focus on what's being said. The voice of God coming through the lips of a man. And so actually trying to, or inadvertently distracting them from that isn't a help to parents either. So there's a challenge here, but above all, I hope you see an encouragement in this. You might think that you have nothing to offer the children in church. You might think you're just too far removed from that stage in life. But in fact, you are part of God's provision for them. We as parents of young children at home cannot do it on our own. It takes a a church to raise a child. Joseph provides for them and for their children. And just in closing tonight, maybe you've been listening and you think, well, this is all very well, but, but how is it going to help with the cost of living crisis? Haven't you been watching the news well, here's a verse for the cost of living crisis. Verse 20. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Naturally, one of the concerns of the brothers would have been about all, the, the, all their stuff. Stuff they'd worked hard to accumulate, but, but they wouldn't have been able to bring it all with them. 
But Joseph tells them, don't worry about that stuff. Why? Because of what's waiting for you when you get there. Because of what's waiting for you when you get there. And we too may need to let go of some things in the days ahead. Uh, We might need to let go of a certain standard of living that, that we hoped that we would have. But if so, that's okay. Because the best of all the land of heaven is ours. Because of what we're going to, what we have to temporarily miss out on. It doesn't matter much. What a tragedy it would have been for the brothers to miss out on being reunited with their brother in the land of plenty because they were trying so hard to cling on to what they had. What a a tragedy that would have been. Uh, And yet, and yet, and yet they don't. Uh, They they go to Joseph. They they leave it behind. Uh, And we are are able to do the same as, as well. And so, uh, three things for us to do now that we're Christians. We, we're to tell this good news to those around us. The good news of, of the, the exalted and the risen Saviour. We're to believe that message ourselves. We're to, we're to tell others. We're not to quarrel on the way. Jesus wanted his disciples not to quarrel. Joseph wanted his brothers not to quarrel. We're not to quarrel on the way. And finally, we're to remember that he will provide for us. He will provide for us. And so, brothers and sisters tonight, have no concern for your goods. For the best of all, the land of Egypt is yours. And remember that he will give you all that you need. Amen. Well, we now sing praise to the God who gives us all that we need from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 19 to 23 on page 74. Psalm 37, 19 to 23, page 74. Uh, the tune is Jackson 102, tune 102. It's so Psalm 37 uh, verse 19 uh, reminds us that God holds on to us. How are we going to make it to the end? Well, the last uh, line of verse 19, the Lord's hand holds him tight. Verse 20 reminds us of God's provision. I once was young and now of old and yet have not observed a righteous man forsaken or his children begging bread. Uh, Not something we're to... We're to take as true in every uh, single instance, but a general principle. Verse 21, the believer is someone who is gracious and lends. Why? Because it's a nice thing to do. Well, no, because we don't have to hold on to stuff here. That frees us up to be gracious and lends. And then verse, verse 22, uh, forever kept. Again, God will ensure we make it to the end. We're forever kept uh, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And then finally, verse 23 uh, says, The just will inherit the land. The best of all the land of heaven is yours. And until that day, well, the second half of the verse, The just man's mouth will wisdom speak. His tongue will justice tell. And what will we tell? We'll tell the good news to those who don't yet believe of a saviour who once was dead but is now 
risen and exalted. So 19 to 23 will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 